Welcome to Radio Survivor. We are here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. I love radio and I love sound. That's good. I'm glad. I'm glad we're all, we, 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 we've come to. <laughs> that is one reason to do the work. <laughs> we're all positive on that. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about on today's show is that the House of Representatives has taken action on the Pirate Act. Oh, which you is, don't say. Intended to combat unlicensed broadcasting in the United States, pirate radio in the United States. You know, for some reason, even though I'm somebody who sort of follows uh, follows the TikTok of what goes on in the U.S. Congress, I didn't know. I didn't know that they passed anything. All I knew was that uh, someone was at a hearing. And they passed it unanimously. The U.S. Congress. The, the U.S. Congress. The, the House or the— The House. Yeah. The House of Representatives of the United States passed a unanimously, unanimously passed— a bill, a bill, affecting to combat pirate, pirate radio. radio. Yes, so didn't they, make the front page. They, uh, they depends on what paper you read. <laughs> uh, they passed a similar bill a year ago, okay, roughly in 2018. Different, different house then, though. Uh, yes, and, and but also never made it through the Senate, right? Okay, you, it is still a bicameral system, so it still needs to be passed in both the House and the Senate, and then be signed by the president, uh, same president. Uh, as last okay, year. so um, and do they call it pirate radio in this? It or? is called the Pirate Act. Yes, of course it's a, it is an acronym. You know, I, I don't have the acronym sure, in front of, of course. me. But we're talking about unlicensed broadcasters in the United States, uh, radio stations, uh, people making radio and putting radio out over the airwaves so that yeah. it could be uh, received by an FM receiver. Usually, it's not an AM pirate. Typically, and these FM pirates, these unlicensed broadcasters, are doing all sorts of radio. In the U.S., which includes a lot of the same things that community radio stations are doing under licensed. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point in time, it's it's overstating it a bit to say that they're like what we traditionally consider community radio. They're they're actually, I mean, I guess it's more like they're radio. They are radio. They play music. They have DJs. The, The key, I think what you're searching for is the fact that very often they're serving cultural communities that are underserved. By other stations in general, yeah, as we've talked about, language on- minorities, etc. And and so, in fact, in sound, they may actually sound like commercial radio. They may actually carry That's advertisements right. for local That's businesses. That's right. I forgot. I forgot that part. Sometimes, but they may be in a Haitian Creole. You know, they may be in in other other languages. They may be they may be in French. They may be uh, you know in in Hebrew uh, or you right. know depending on on the population that they're serving, um, because. There are no other radio outlets or media outlets, broadcast media outlets that serve these particular yeah. As we've talked about on Radio Survivor on past episodes, um, cities like Miami, cities like New York. New York, Brooklyn, and, northern New Jersey. Uh, uh, what was the third one? Was it Boston? Boston area. Uh, and these are places where uh, large immigrant diasporas are sort of uh, putting, their, putting their radio back up on their airwaves in the place where they live. Um, I learned from a recent Radio Survivor episode. I don't remember the number or the guest, but um, it's from a lot David of times, Gorin about the uh, pirate radio right. archive. Yeah, there pirate radio, pirate radio sound map. Really, these unlicensed radio makers, these pirates, are coming from uh, sometimes countries that didn't have a licensing structure for radio in the first or, place, or which it's so loose. It's not even. A, I don't think it's that they don't have a licensing structure so much as that uh, it's it, relatively loose and and that. There's not a lot of enforcement. There's there's things that the authorities have to worry about more so than, yeah. than unlicensed broadcasting. I think almost every country has a licensing regime. It's just the extent to which 
there's enforcement in yeah. which people can be easily taken off the air or and it can be punished. You know, kind of like as we talked about Irish pirate radio that happened during the 1980s, there was a licensing regime and it was officially illegal, but the penalties were so minor right. for unlicensed broadcasting in that country during the 80s that effectively it meant that there was no strong enforcement against it. Now, in the United States, you know, it is the job of the Federal Communications Commission to police the airways uh, with regard to licensed or unlicensed broadcasting. And it, it, it has, you know, a full slate of, of methodologies to go after, to go after people right. who, who broadcast illegally. To stop pirates. And in, in several states, which include New York, New Jersey, and Florida, there's also state laws on the books hmm. where, where actual police can, can arrest people uh, and, and uh, prosecute them for broadcasting without a license. I just, before we talk about this new law, yeah. I also want to mention that recently on Radio Survivor, we've talked um, – we had a, a guest on, uh, Julia Thomas, who traveled the world visiting radio stations all over the globe. We learned from Julia, much like um, other places now that aren't coming to mind, that across the globe, the, there are stations that are essentially unlicensed because they are in this uh, – Kind of a gray area. They're in a gray area because they're not – the the government there's so much red tape or the 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 what the government is is so um, ineffective right. or untrustworthy. Well, as we learned in Argentina, that's, that's there was the one regime, one. right? Yeah. Uh, the, you know, there was one uh, Congress and president which passed a law authorizing community radio. Then there was a change in government, a, a more conservative neoliberal. Uh, president took over, and the law was never actually put into action. Yeah, so the people in Argentina who wanted a radio station and had a pathway to do it legally, uh, that pathway narrowed down to a to a pinhole. There, it still was there, but they really couldn't walk through all the well. There the no, there was the no, no, no. Th- there's no actual hole there. So in Argentina. The law was passed, but it's never been put into effect. Okay. So you can't actually get the, the license. The way I thought of uh, what Julia Thomas described yeah. in South Africa, I believe, or yeah. it might have been in um, uh, Southern Africa, I should say, not the country of South mm-hmm. Africa, but countries in, in Southern Africa. And it's like, I think it was Zimbabwe. That is a very similar kind of uh, a quasi gray area framework for pirate radio, for unlicensed radio, that they they had a they had a licensed path and then the licensed path was sort of smudged. So they're still on the air. They're doing radio the way that they would have done radio. They're they're not choosing to be pirates. They're they're making radio and it just so happens that the country that they're in doesn't currently have a a clear path yeah. to being to being licensed, which is um not dissimilar to what has happened in the United States as well with pirates. In in some ways, yes. And and we, in in these areas like Brooklyn, South Florida, um, you know, there's a there's a tremendous proliferation, right? And and that's what has provided the of stations. The, yes, the impetus for this act, for the Pirate Act, which recently passed the House of Representatives. And certainly uh, the National Association of Broadcasters, as well as state-level broadcasting associations in New York, New Jersey, Florida, and elsewhere, also uh, have endorsed uh, and, and, and lobbied for the passage of this bill. Yeah, I can't help it but mention one last time before we get into the details of the bill, that if you listen to that Radio Survivor episode with David Gorin, uh, where David worked to archive the sound of these pirates, I'm just hearing these sounds. Um, such a, such a, del- for someone who loves radio and loves sound, 
there's nothing but a smile on my face for what these pirate radio stations sound like. They just sound so um, lively and diverse and different and interesting. If I lived in a community that I happened to be able to tune in one of these pirates, they'd definitely be on my on my speed dial uh, on, on one of my settings just to hear. Uh, even though I don't speak these languages, just to hear the the you know it's it's a little trip across the seas. Uh, mm-hmm. it, you know when when you can tune in a pirate. Now, of course, um, if there was a station that you preferred on the dial that was being blocked or interfered yeah. by these pirates, you might not feel the same. Right. Way. I mean, right. And, and that is that, sort of the, the, the flip side yeah. is that there are real circumstances, especially in areas where, where the stations uh, are, there's so many of them where they do interfere with, with the fringe or sometimes not even fringe reception areas of licensed stations. They often interfere with each other. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, and, and it does become uh, more problematic, I, I think in a lot of ways. Um, what I'm going to say, though, I'm going to put my own opinion out here, is that the, as we go through what is the Pirate Act, I think it sounds a lot like uh, bills or laws we hear uh, passed in order that are there to combat uh, the use of illegal drugs. Oh. Right. Um, right. And, and so much of the history, I think, of drug enforcement, especially maybe in the last 25 years, the United States is about increasing penalties. Right. Let's step up enforcement. Let's step up penalties. Right. This must be the key. And I think that uh, it's not uncommon for people to think that that methodology has been a failure. Yeah. In well, the John States. Anderson, a uh, hundred years ago on Radio Survivor, or a year. Yeah. No. I think, well, it, was, it might have been back in <laughs> the single digits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, single digit days of Radio Survivor. Mm. We're on episode 183 now, and I think it might have been back before we got to episode 100. John Anderson. Uh, closed out an interview with Radio Survivor with us where he mentioned uh, harm reduction would be a more appropriate approach, yeah. you know, as, as a metaphor for the war on drugs. That, yeah, exactly. That, that, yeah, no, you know, he definitely recommended. tough on crime pirate radio enforcement's not, it's not solving any problems and it's just making everything complicated. No, it's it, it simply, right, I mean, it isn't working. And so there's sort of, I think, the, the approach of the Pirate Act is, well, so far the FCC somehow hasn't had the tools to to effectively enforce, so let's give them more tools. So that includes increasing the fines. Okay, right? so Congress has passed a new bill, a new law that hasn't hasn't been signed into law yet yeah, to so increase the fines the for being a pirate radio yeah. broadcaster yeah, in the so United increases States. Increases the uh, the fine up to an allowable hundred thousand dollars per day. Okay, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, um, with a maximum penalty of two million dollars. Wow. Uh, I might point out that. Only a small percentage of fines issued for unlicensed broadcasting are ever actually collected. Because the people that are being fined don't often have, don't $2 have million. money. Dollars. Often don't have the money. Also, because of the, the sheer uh, amount of paperwork it requires to actually proceed to the to fines yeah. being collected. It's more of a big, big stick. The, F- the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, will be required to prove it's working hard to combat piracy and support enforcement by reporting its progress to Congress annually. This is not a. This is not unusual. The commission has been asked to do this in other areas. One area that it's required to do so is with regard to uh, to media ownership. It's required to do a biannual review every two years. A biannual review on media ownership, um, as our friend Professor Christopher Terry, the University of Minnesota, has pointed out, the FCC is very, very late on doing this. <laughs> so give uh, reporting what now on on uh media ownership okay but i i uh, and then so the new reporting requirements are 
that pirates exist? That it's uh, to say that it's working hard to combat the pirates. Oh, okay. Give us a report on on, on your enforcement activities. Yes, exactly. Um, as well, there are going to be biannual enforcement sweeps in the top five radio markets. Okay. So now, so now boots on the ground. Which boots is, on the ground. Which has it's been a while since boots have uh, swept. No. Well, um, has there? It's it's like weren't there more? Wasn't there more activity? At one no. point in the history of the United States, <laughs> no. so it's just I'm thinking about that one Christian Slater movie. Yes, where Correct. jeeps are literally chasing yes. him. Yes, right. FCC jeeps. There's never, there has never been that. Uh, there have been individual FCC offices, you know, in cities like Seattle or Denver, Colorado, where uh, the local authorities there have sort of prioritized enforcement of of unlicensed broadcasting. And, and, and been particularly dogged in pursuit of particular unlicensed broadcasters. Mm-hmm. This has happened. There has never been – the FCC are not cops. Right. There's not forces of people. And, and you also have to understand that the Enforcement Bureau, which is the, the part of the FCC which is charged with, uh, with looking at pirates, is also charged with making sure licensed broadcasters are operating according right. to the technical rules. They have rules. enough to do already. And in, in eras of smaller and smaller government – Right. Yeah, not exactly. At, they don't have the, the staffing to, to take on all their challenges. I, I'd like to mention now that since you brought up local local uh, jurisdictions, you know, local governments. Well, these aren't local governments. No, but you, yeah, yeah. you just said something about like Denver. Oh, yeah, and that yeah, was yeah. FCC office. Yeah, it was not, that was not local police. It's nice, to, it's nice to throw into the mix that a lot of times these pirate radio stations will, will, will be the kinds of radio stations that interview local elected officials. Which is why I compared them to community radio right. above and beyond commercial radio. You're not going to hear a congress, per- not a, 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 count- a city council person, is not often interviewed on local commercial. Well, what radio. what'll happen often is that, especially in a big metro area, you may have a suburb or smaller town in that media footprint, and so maybe a Denver public official will get interviewed, but somebody in Longmont, Colorado may not. But a lot of times these pirates, and we have, you know, we've seen it, uh, will interview yeah. local electeds. And, and it's, uh, as you've mentioned, Paul, uh, it, there's not uh, any guarantee that those local electeds even know that they're walking <laughs> through the doors of a it, pirate I mean, it station. Re- and it really depends. And it, in some cases, we've seen, you know, city councils uh, go on record in support of, right. of a known unlicensed station, which they feel is providing that community radio-like service. Yeah, recognizing that that, that it's, these a, stations. it's a very complicated history, yeah. right? It's we're, it, you know we're talking about the 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 um, the Pirate Act, which has recently recently passed uh, the U.S. House of Representatives, and I have that acronym for our listeners. It's Preventing Illegal Radio Abuse Through Enforcement yes. Act. Well, there you go, and that that pretty much sums it up. So there's supposed to be these biennial uh, enforcement sweeps. I want that job in the top five radio markets. Uh, so you know. Where in which they're to identify, locate, and take enforcement actions designed to terminate such operations, you know. So, I mean, I think what that does mean is that there would be time in which the FCC staff in these various areas would be focused, particularly. I mean, we, you know, how this actually plays out is going to be up to the Federal Communications Commission. Yeah. Right. The Congress makes the laws. It'll be the commission if this law is passed, which decides how this goes around. It's, it's so fascinating to think about the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy too, where. Really, will they have desks with computers and people at those desks to even do these jobs? That's it's always a question, can, isn't it? Because they passed the uh, 
it's not more money, right? It, it, no. the, the Congress passed a law telling them to do something. They didn't give them more money to do it with. No. That, that would be in the appropriations yeah, so. uh, process. Uh, this is an interesting point. It will eliminate the notice of unlicensed operation. Okay. So, and this is a very arcane point, but it's an important point. That the process is typically, if the FCC uh, Enforcement Bureau representatives find an unlicensed signal, and they are able to figure out where it comes from, mm-hmm. right? You know, they narrow it down, they find an address. The first thing they do is they're to send a notice of unlicensed operation, basically saying you to you, "We have found you. We know what you're. We up know to. what you're up to, and stop it." Yeah. Right, you know, telling you that, et cetera, um, before in, they in proceed. In which case, uh, some some people operating unlicensed radio stations uh, will actually uh, shut it down. Yeah. That'll that'll be their sign that it's over. Right. for them. I mean, and, some and, yeah, of them, some of them. You know, and it's almost impossible for us to say uh, how many do. It's an but, opportunity for them. To, you know, and then some may also just yeah. close up shop and move. Yeah. Right. Um, That's so. There's there's the there's the the flaw in the in the gamesmanship of right. of pirate radio. <laughs> And so by eliminating this, it says that they would be able to immediately issue instead a notice of apparent liability. So they're jumping straight to the fines. Jumping straight to, to a fine, yes. To say basically, we, we really think you're doing this, and, and, and the next step <sighs> yeah. is we're going to fine you. Um, okay. And then the commission will create a new pirate radio broadcasting database. Oh, that's it will fun contain radio the stations survivor. licensed in the AM and FM bands, including assigned frequency, channel number, or call letters. Additionally, the database will identify entities that have received a notice of unlicensed operation, notice of apparent liability, or forfeiture issued under the, by the commission. Now, this to, is something which our friend John Anderson did for many years. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's it? What's the word? The Pro enforcement, bono, he, like yeah, a, the Enforcement Action Database, which he maintained at DIYmedia.net. Um, DIY Media. <laughs> DIYmedia.net, yes. And uh, <laughs> so now the FCC will be required to maintain this so database. You're saying that, that, that uh, the government never had a real list before that was available to, no. to academics, to historians, to radio right. nerds, and now they will. Yeah, I mean, you, and, and what but you before could do, this, John was the only person. John Anderson was the only person that had this list. Yes, uh, on the uh, FCC website, in the Enforcement Bureau section, there they do have a list that gets updated constantly, where you can read the enforcement actions. Uh-huh. So they're posted to the website. You can read the letters they send out. So when you see like a, an article in it's a radio world talking about it, that's generally speaking where they get their information. Uh, they just periodically check that and see where those are, where those are happening. But before this time, the list wasn't compiled. It, yeah. It was not in a it sort was, of database for it spit form. out into the world and, and left out all there. in text. Yes. I like this. So yeah, as, as a historian, as a wannabe radio historian now, <laughs> Now it's it's nice <laughs> no, to know yeah, right. that uh, that future generations can find such a list. And finally, they're going. They the, this act defines pirate radio, oh. as quote the transmission of communications on spectrum frequencies between five hundred thirty five and seventeen hundred and five kilohertz inclusive, or eighty seven point seven and one hundred eight megahertz. I don't okay. What so that that's mean, the Paul? AM and the FM dial. Okay. <laughs> is it time is it time to throw into the mix for for anyone who is listening to our voices and hasn't heard uh past episodes of radio survivor where we've talked about uh the the whole the whole world of unlicensed radio there's even in fact un legal unlicensed yes. radio is still available in the united states which is something i didn't know uh five years ago you can you can set up radio stations without a license that are not 
pirates that are that are operating at a at yeah. a low enough uh, wattage, wattage, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the distance that you can go from the antenna and still hear. And the certainly, thing. you know, these sorts of step up enforcement worries people in that community. Yeah, because it, so there is a set of of rules that are that are gang together called part 15 we call it part 15 part 15 and so this permits it includes you, real estate you know it's not they don't do this anymore but if if a, if a house that was being sold uh, would have a little radio station inside of it so you could you could turn right. your radio on and, and learn about this property i guess in the days before uh all these websites yeah. and apps that do the same thing. Part 15 covers basically unlicensed transmissions of all sorts. Yeah. We've talked about it on Radio Survivor. My favorite kind of Part 15 radio fantasy is like a dense urban building where, you know, you're, you could you can imagine having a radio station in your apartment that broadcasts uh, successfully to your entire building. Right. Everyone in your building can turn on their radio and listen, and you could even do – uh, what has actually happened historically in places like Japan, where you can have your friends over for a Mini party, FM, and throw uh, radio parties, throw, yes. throw a party, and have have a open mic, uh, you know, jam uh, at the at the microphone, and that's that's what's broadcast out to the building, uh, as, as affected by the uh, theorist uh, Tetsuo Kogawa. What a, what a fun and which is just like. I just love that because radio is often thought of as this, um, this uh, you know, a tower on the hill. Right. And that's what's so nice about community radio is that many more people are allowed to access said tower. But it's still, uh, it's still a walk to get in, in, even in, up to community radio, which is what's so nice about and, and low power, low FM power reduces FM. that yeah. a little bit, right? Because your your footprint tends to be measured in 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 you but, know portions but, of a mile. But the rather access than to part fifteen decades, is tens of miles. And now, especially with uh, the way the internet works, the the way to get a station on the air is incredibly. Uh, the bar is lower than it's mm-hmm. ever been before. A legal part fifteen unlicensed radio station is is attainable for just for the price of a cup of coffee <laughs> you know, not quite i just uh, i got into thinking about numbers it, the 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 numbers are low it's it's under hundreds of dollars yeah it's the price of a laptop yeah yes and and you know to make radio with with particular rules in which you know really greatly limit obviously how far you can broadcast and I think the concerns of the Part 15 community are that— With this new Preventing Illegal Radio Abuse Through Enforcement Act in Congress. Yes, their, their concerns are there will be people who are intending to obey the law yeah. and, and, and may accidentally, uh, because the rules are a little arcane and difficult to always measure, broadcast with slightly more power or slightly further than they're intended sure. to and may get swept up. And identified as a pirate when they're really intending to do to broadcast under Part 15 rules I, and be and be completely legal. I thought of another use of unlicensed radio that I love that I've learned about on Radio Survivor, and that's artists who will who will do like pop up radio stations. Arts, yes, yes. That you know, uh, we spoke with one artist uh, on Radio Survivor once who they had a concert on a boat out in the middle of a lake, and you to listen to the to the to the music being performed on the boat you would need to be on the shore of the lake and turn on a radio. Yeah. And like that kind of use of radio uh, really lit up a, my the, a lot of light bulbs for me. Just what an exciting thing to think about again that that radio is not just this unattainable like dream or or something that people used to do previous generations had access to building radio stations. It really is something that could still uh, be activated right now that radio mm-hmm. is is available to people to make and to use and uh 
it's neat. It's I think it's not a widely known fact that you could build a radio station. Uh, an illegal one. Yeah. That yeah, you can exactly. go is you can buy a transmitter that, Let that alone is designed how and fun intended it might to be, be legal. for some people to go on the air as an unlicensed pirate. Right. Um and also on Radio Survivor, we've discussed many times the historical all of the times throughout the world in the history, including the United States, but we've talked about it in Ireland and we've talked about it in Argentina, that often unlicensed radio stations perform a real service and you know, in 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 times of peace and in times of struggle, these stations uh they do what radio does well, which is bring voices mm-hmm. to to audiences. Right. And uh sometimes that license is uh is not available, but the work is still valuable. Right. Yes. And so this is the Pirate Act. It has passed Congress. It's st- or passed uh, the House. It still needs to uh, be passed in the Senate and would need to go on to be signed to become law. And, you know, and I think it's important to point out, I, you know, that it's hard for, for anyone to argue that the proliferation of unlicensed stations in places like Brooklyn uh, or South Florida doesn't actually start to create some level of chaos on the airwaves. Um, right. I think anyone who's thinking about it in, in as much as that I, I myself can be a supporter of yeah, people, even, even radio lovers might find right. fault with right. what radio sounds like when and, there's and this I, and many the, unlicensed stations. How, you know, it is re- that the proliferation of unlicensed radio during the 90s helped to spur the FCC into action in creating low-power FM in the early 2000s. Such an incredible – like that is a future episode of Radio Survivor. At some point, we will really tell that story mm-hmm. with guests and in detail that, that you know, low-power FM, which is the biggest proliferation of, of community new radio. community radio stations in our lifetime, if not ever, is – it's you know, for, for the uninitiated – there are new stations all around the country that um, are that come in as these low power FM stations. It 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 broke in two main windows. So a lot of these stations now are five years old or or uh, or going on or, in or, any case going on eighteen years old. Wow. So yeah, I mean the two thousands are, are long. Uh, <laughs> we've we've been in these decades for a while. Um, all these new stations come about because of um, some unlicensed, some pirate activity in the '90s that really pushed. We're, yeah, the, where the activists issue. were creating unlicensed stations that were really, in effect, community stations where they were trying, you know, having the same sort of uh, programming and the same sort of basic uh, approach to to broadcasting as your your licensed community station. Uh, in places where there where there were not licenses available, with the mm-hmm. argument saying that the fact that you won't license us at 10 or 15 or 100 watts um, has nothing to do with the technical qualities and and yeah because that was the argument yeah that was the official argument is there's no room for you there's no it's, room for it's you it's too yeah. hard so these stations got on the air made radio in the spaces that were available proved that it was doable awesome. yeah. viable clean and safe and, and nice. able to not to not uh interfere with 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 existing license stations and and often brought communities to their yeah. side in places like san francisco and places like brattleboro vermont where there were prominent unlicensed community stations that uh that that, that again were part of this movement to help to move yeah. uh forward the licensing of low power fm also i don't want to say it was the singular force sure because there were many 
uh, community media activists from many different right. quarters who, like, who gathered together to that's help. That's what make I was going to say next. Was it was all part of this really interesting time period. Now, now that I have to look back on it because I was there when I was in my twenties. But there was a really vibrant indie media movement mm-hmm. that 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 sort of flowered in the nineties. It was a part of lots of other movements and lots of other things. But it was the the, the very early days of the internet, the sort of late stage days of certain kinds of corporate media. Right. We were we were just a few years into the uh, Telecommunications Act of 1996, which removed the national caps and radio ownership yeah. and, 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 and resulted in, in tremendous consolidation and, if, and homogenization and of, if I of may, commercial radio. If I may armchair historian the indie media movement, I think it also was just really the 90s at that point was really – it was very easy to see that the media – I mean there was already lots of um, academics saying this and it's only gotten 30 years worse. But you could see that what media consolidation was doing to the availability of certain voices and you know, newspapers even in the 90s were getting uh, less – that less diverse uh, there were there were less diverse voices there's you know, newspapers were shrinking even then uh we've seen now in 2019 uh that we haven't seen the bottom yet of just how few reporters jobs there can be in any one community but the indie media movement of the 90s really had all of that in mind and and these uh pirate radio stations were that that led to the low yeah power spiritual FM part of that yeah i mean movement. the indie media movement being in many ways uh very very decentralized Right, so it, there was no, there's no head to it all. Yeah, but it, but I do think that there was this uh, sort of rough collaboration of forces, which came to a head uh, during the WTO meeting that happened in Seattle um, in November of 1999. Did they have a radio station? There were many radio stations. There were many unlicensed radio stations that were on the air to provide news. And, and to people who were protesting, in addition to people who weren't protesting, directly from the streets, uh, under the belief, and I think that belief was borne out, that the corporate media at the time, or even now, wouldn't do a great job and would have an inherent bias uh, against uh, the people protesting yeah. in the streets of Seattle um, and that they would need to deliver that news uh, more directly. And that was uh, along with you know an actual independent media center that opened up. Uh, that provided computers and internet connections in a time when there was no th- such thing as mobile broadband yeah. in which many people did not have cell phones uh, so that they could take the stories from the street and publish them almost instantaneously before we had a YouTube, uh, before we had a Tumblr. Before there was social media. Before there was a Twitter and social media. Yeah. Uh, this idea, you know, This idea that you could instantaneously publish an account of what's going on in the streets uh, that had not existed, yeah, and, really... and it was created there, um, and ultimately turned into a movement that proliferated through the 2000s called the Independent Media Center Movement, became international, and in many ways uh, aligned with community radio broadcasters of all stripes, of all licensed status, of all statuses, right? Yeah. Um, so I think you're sort of recounting this history, and, and it's important to note, I would love to, I would love for us to be able to do more on this issue. That's year, what I was just going to say. Because we're is, hitting the 20th anniversary. This is really a... This is really a Radio Survivor episode. I mean, these are interviews uh, dying to happen. Yes. A, there's, a strong, uh, there's a strong push in, in my mind as a producer of radio to get a lot of these stories recorded for Radio Survivor. Because, yeah, I think the indie media movement, yeah, it's, and it's, um, I can't believe it's 20 years old, yeah. but there you go.
So one way you can help us do that is by supporting Radio Survivor. Uh, we run a campaign on Patreon, which is an opportunity for you to donate a regular amount of money every single month to us to help us both keep up the operations we do, the production of this podcast, all the hosting costs, the writing that goes on at radiosurvivor.com. But we also would like to look forward and seeing, as we've just noted, that this is kind of a pivotal year in history, the 20th anniversary, the Independent Media Center movement, which birthed a lot of a lot of technologies and a lot of community media that we take for granted today came out of that uh, bringing together of, of people across uh, different spectra, across different communities uh, who came together to say, we need to make media ourselves. We can't rely on our stories being told accurately by corporate media. We need to create that ourselves. That is the spirit in which Radio Survivor exists. And we think it's a really important history that could use to be told. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd i like to make a, a pitch, a plug today to Radio Survivor listeners that uh, help us help us record the oral history of the indie media movement, you know, 20 at the 20 year anniversary or so of its of of its flowering it would just be so nice to start to start now recording interviews with people and it would it would go a long way to help it'd be a vote of confidence if you could support the work yeah i think if we can get to 100 individual patrons right we're we're now in the 30s if we can get to 100 individual pa- patrons by july of this year this is something we can do and we would love for you to help us out. We can begin to tell the story in radio and in print of the Independent Media Center movement and how Low Power FM actually happened. Because the stories were now at this point, which they may get lost, as in, yeah. which, in which people's memories go. And unfortunately, many people who are people active go, yeah. will no longer be with Not us. Not everyone was in their 20s in the 90s. Some That's of, right. Some people who were a part of the indie media movement were... were um, basically you know 60s people and there's many voices that might be left out of official accounts because they're inconvenient voices to include and we would like to include them yeah so if you can get us to 100 patrons by july of this year of 2019 this is work that we are going to be able to do there has got to be a podcasting story in there somewhere things that were not called podcasts but i'm sure there were internet radio reports archived internet radio there are there were there was radio.indymedia.org of course where where people were uploading both shows but individual and like just individual mp3 reports and and i don't know where all this stuff is archived some of it is at radioforall.net yeah which is archives that go back to that far back it's an allied kind of organization. But these are things that we can pull from plus do original work. So go to patreon.com slash radio survivor or go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. We're, look, we're looking for 100 patrons. You can become one. And the level started a dollar a month, but it go up from there. The more you can spare, the more you're going to help us reach that kind of finish line to be able to do this kind of work and help provide this historical perspective around community media that really needs to be documented in a way that's accessible, that's accessible to many people. And, you know, my favorite thing about what Radio Survivor is right now, if I may toot a horn or two, is that, you know, not only are we this podcast, that we also go out on radio stations. And so 
It's like go on two radio stations. Yes, we yes. are we are being broadcast on the airwaves. Uh, not this particular pitch. Yes. Thank you, uh, podcast listeners, because you know we're not we're not giving these pitches on the radio. But the show, the content is going out to different radio stations, and I just um, it warms my heart to think about somewhere in America there's a young person who who doesn't know. I mean, there's a lot of us listening. There's a lot of radio survivor people that lived through the indie media movement and uh, don't need a don't need an education in what that time period was, but there's so many people that have come up since the 90s that are that are ready to learn about what in addition to I think the that work there, was. It's very hard, you know, there may be somebody who was doing independent media in Madison, Wisconsin who who doesn't know what was happening right. in Portland, Oregon or in Miami. And I think that, you know, it, it's the same thing why we do this show and we talk so much about community radio even is that the person listening to community radio in one city in Boulder, Colorado, doesn't necessarily know right. about what's happening in Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah. And you don't always realize that 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 you're talking about a movement, right? It's not, it's not just a radio station. It's a movement. And it's a movement that has gotten very broad and very deep, both in the United States and around the world. And I think it's stronger when viewed and understood as a movement. And that uh, there's a greater opportunity for enrichment and social change yeah. when when stations know about each other, when listeners know about other groups of listeners, and we understand that this is something valuable that that can be used to to help bring more voices to the air, as well as I think to to further the, the cause itself. So please help us do some of that work. It's ambitious, but um, and it will take time. It will take energy. But if you can help us get there, we'll be able to spend more of that time and energy. So go to radiosurvivor.com slash support where you can learn about our Patreon account um, or go to patreon.com slash radiosurvivor. If you want to give a one-time donation, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support and learn how to do that. Um, we do have bonus episodes. We have bonus content and things that we love to share with our, our, our supporters. It's really just a little thank you. We know that's yeah. not why you do it. You do it to help us keep doing this. And now we want to get ambitious and do more. You're listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. We cover the world of community radio and college radio and the radio on the internet that is sometimes called podcasting and sometimes called uh, streaming media. On demand. Yeah, when it, when, it, when it interweaves with the worlds of community media and the, the kinds of access and the, the, the radio that people make. My name is Eric Klein. I'm here with Paul Reese Mendel. And we just spent the first half of the show talking about uh, – Unlicensed radio, which led us to a to a lively uh, reminiscing about what the India media movement was all about, and you know, there's nothing that gives the India media movement more of like a um, the glue that holds it together in a lot of ways is um, heaping scorn on a company called Clear Channel. There really now was, known as iHeartMedia. It really was a big part of that world because. Uh, if if I may be a little bit of a Gen X grandpa here and and dialogue with my friends listening, a radio used to be better. All over the country, every city had some good radio. It really it really was uh, better. And we know this. People who have a memory, my memory, I might have been much younger than some people. Some people's memories of good radio, but the eighties, the seventies. I want to put a proviso on this, uh-huh. so uh, so I don't want to I don't want to argue with your fundamental point. 
I think it's a grand statement, and it deserves, it's a grand statement. And like so push. many things, great radio was often fragile. So th- there are certain aspects I think, when when viewed through the lens of time, we we sit there and we go, oh, it was amazing when in the late seventies or early eighties, uh, your local kind of contemporary hit radio station would have news at the top of the hour and might actually employ a local reporter. Yeah. Somebody who would not just read, but also uh, report. They which, would know stuff. Which could be very important often in towns like where I grew up, Tom's River, New Jersey, which is at the Jersey Shore. So it's about, you know, it's about 90 miles from, from Philadelphia, about 90 miles from New York. And you will not hear news about Tom's River, New Jersey on a New York or Philadelphia radio station unless, you know, a bunch of people get killed. Like there has to be right. massive, uh, some massive news. Which is not helping anybody when that news no. is reported. It's and, just, you know, you know, there's a local newspaper, of drama. course. Um, and, uh, but I used to be on WOBM FM, which was like the big radio station in Tom's River that everyone seemed to listen to kind of basically adult contemporary. Mm-hmm. But like I worked in a retail store and we had it on all the time. Every hour on the hour, there was a news report, which was reported by they had a news director right and if you think about wkrp in we're cincinnati talking about, we're talking about pop radio music yeah, had music. had news yeah employees and 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 on other stations often if they did not have a local news person they usually would run network news like an yeah. abc radio news and or another thing like that. that made radio great greater than than it was than it than it became is that and commercial radio in particular yeah, you're talking about right, exactly that commercial radio also had um, local DJs really had a passion for music, and so each station had a voice and and an and a editorial well, I viewpoint. Can, and, and again, you can problematize this a little bit. I mean, I will. I yeah. mean, so yes, there were real, live, actual, living people. Yeah, mostly who, men, who, but men and women who loved these songs. Who put and actual records them with their community. on the turntable or put yeah. CDs Which in, is the, something in the that, CD like, player. Now in 2019, feels like only community radio does that. Now, very often, it, the proviso here is they had no say over what they played. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, playlisting was not even was not a new phenomenon in the 90s it was not a new phenomenon in the 80s and it was not a new phenomenon in the 70s and so those stations where either you had DJs that had some level of of autonomy uh, autonomy or you had program directors who were perhaps a bit more forward thinking and willing to break beyond the confines of of the billboard charts I mean, those were still rare. People were complaining about the quality of radio going downhill in the 70s sure. and 80s because of the fact that they felt like they did not play local bands. It was more wild, you know, back in their day. Right. Or, yeah, I mean, you know, or the sense that, like, you could bring a local brand, could bring a record to the, sure. to the program there, director and ask it to get played. There was a time before my time that uh, FM radio had the kind of uh, uh, great unknown, uh, like, bleeding edge of culture FM radio was thought of that way that like now podcasts had last year. And again, year. it was still in the minority. I think I, we have to we have to really point this out that that there were reasons <laughs> why people didn't like commercial radio in the seventies and eighties. Uh, it wasn't all golden. It, no, it wasn't. But what I think it's more that is that due to the fact that it was more likely that your radio station had local ownership. There was less likely that it that it was nationally owned because there were caps on how many stations yeah. could be owned. And those nationally. caps were lifted it was more, in 1996. More likely to have local management. More likely to have a local program director. More likely to have DJs who came from the community. 
And so, and all of that changed. And 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 very often, you know, I'm thinking even the radio stations I listened to growing up, like WMMR in Philadelphia, WNEW in New York, which had rock, and it often had specialty programs where they played metal or played import music from you know like alternative imports from the UK and things where they broke out of their usual kind of uh, more playlisted schedule. Those kind of went away. Yeah, and 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 so when they went away. It happened in the 90s. It happened after the telecommunication. I mean, it started before that, but really there was this uh, big Yeah, it's a moment when they, when they removed the national caps. Bill that yeah. passed through Congress in 1996, and a company called Clear Channel was one of one that pioneered uh, consolidation. And it happened very rapidly, as, as our friend Christopher Terry, uh, who is now a professor of media law at the University of Minnesota, he worked in local radio in Milwaukee in talk radio, and he has told us how, you know, in the span of just weeks, he yeah. was working at a station that had multiple different owners just in the span of Was that of really weeks. three years ago that we commemorated the yes the 20 year anniversary of it the was. 1996 so and, and so Act. you can certainly go back and listen to that episode we'll have uh links in our show notes go to radiosurvivor.com yeah. uh slash but podcast I'm, I'm bringing it up for a fun new 2019 update and the company known as clear channel which is blamed by uh now known as iHeartMedia. media yeah cha- changed names it's blamed by people like me for ruining radio that they used to love uh it's big into podcasting now. And so I get worried. Yes. I worry that iHeartMedia, which now is, is – its footprint in the world of podcasting has just grown enormously in the last uh, few months. They really have jumped into it with both feet, as yes, they, they, say. they They've made they, investments. They bought the network How Stuff Works, which, which uh, produces a number of very popular, very good podcasts. And now the company has jumped in with both feet to produce their own podcast, like the Ron Burgundy podcast. Yeah, they're, I, I got a Facebook ad for the Ron Burgundy podcast recently. And I was like, oh, they're really doing it. It's and really coming through uh, my feeds. And they're sort of putting uh, many of their more top morning shows on as podcasts as well. The Ron Burgundy podcast, it's a really great idea. It's so funny to take this character and give him a show to interview celebrities it's a very funny thing if I'm going to – now I'm, I'm – I, I definitely – I'm expecting my check, I heart media, because uh, <laughs> I've, I've just plugged it. But there's a big difference. There is a really fundamental difference between podcasting and radio. You're, you're jumping into the don't worry, Eric. Yes. It's not as bad as you think. I want to say before we jump into that idea where I, I'm convinced that iHeartMedia is going to ruin podcasting and Paul talks me out of it, that Paul, you work for one of iHeartMedia's major competitors I do. in the world of podcasting. Which I is- work for Stitcher, which is owned by the EW Scripps company, which is itself you know, a somewhat large company that owns a lot of TV stations. And it's, it's exciting to talk about podcasting. We have talked about it on recent episodes because – the year 2019 really is a significant moment in the history of this medium where um, it, it's growing and bi- different businesses are uh, getting into it. So I'm, I'm not only is uh, Stitcher uh, bigger than it was five years ago uh, doing podcasts, not only is iHeartMedia, formerly Clear Channel, getting big into podcasts, but um, we talked on Radio Survivor uh, a couple weeks ago about um, – Spotify. That's a bonus episode. Oh, yeah. Spotify purchased Gimlet. Gimlet used to be this uh, scrappy indie startup that made podcasts in New York City. Now, 
uh, now what's going to happen now, now they're Spotify uh, making them. podcasts in New yeah. York City. <laughs> but so uh, podcasts are changing a lot. And what's so fun about all of that, though, before you talk me out of mm-hmm. the idea, is that just because these big boys are doing it, unlike radio, that doesn't mean that there's no space for other people right. to do podcasts. That, really, and that's it's the still, fundamental difference. There's still room. In 1997, a year after the Telecommunications Act had passed, you could not get a low-power FM station on the air. So those more, you know, thousands of stations that now exist could not have existed in 1997. At the same time, right, in most uh, big metroplexes at the very least, um, nearly every possible license spot on the dial was already spoken for, either non-commercially or commercially. So when Clear Channel started, you know, gobbling up these stations, it really was a uh uh, reducing the amount of available. It's like real estate. Really Imagine if somebody were buying up all of the, the, the houses in your town or all of the commercial properties in your town. Yeah, but there it, was nowhere to grow into the suburbs at this right, point. Right, exactly. That, that's, I think that's a great metaphor. And, you know, and, and it wasn't the case that, that there were no possible licenses available, but they were definitely taking, especially, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of metroplexes, they were taking, you know, everything that was valuable. Right, yeah. everything that that was going to hit a lot of people, um, and and sort of sucking the air out of the room, right? And while they also were combining operations, firing local staff, uh, combining management at at regional and national levels, uh, taking away local programming decisions, and replacing again, people with automation. Clear Channel, not the only corporation acting in this way, but no, the biggest they at the pioneered time. it. There was other other entities yeah. also yeah, swallowing right, up exactly. the little the little stations, right? Um, in podcasting. There's no licenses. Yeah. And that means that... And there's also like no big... I mean, there's no one... Yeah, are you, this is what, what you're Right, there's say. no one place for podcasts. Just because a podcast is a big podcast doesn't mean that another podcast can't stand next to that. Right. In, in on your... Either the real estate in this metaphor is uh, in your ears. Like you could listen to the biggest podcast in the world one minute and then switch over on your device on whatever you listen to to a podcast that only one person is listening to you and those two podcasts have the same amount of access to every listener yes exactly and that's different than radio that's different than radio where access is is strictly limited where there is scarcity and in podcasting there is no scarcity in terms of supply the only scarcity that in terms of how many podcasts there can be. There's no practical limit to that. The size of the internet. Right. Yeah. Where I think people get worried is the scarcity of attention. Podcasts are the least of your concern. <laughs> right? I mean, if, if you're worried about one podcast competing with another podcast, don't worry. You should worry about, you know, you should worry about just staring at Facebook mindlessly as the big, your big competitor. Right. I mean, there, there's a lot there. And, and I think that, you know. Attention span competitors. I mean, and basically it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's basically it. I read, and and I read certainly if somebody's primary consumption of podcasts is through their iHeartRadio app, right, that exposes them. And, and there are lots of podcasts there. So there are lots of podcasts not produced by iHeart, by iHeart yeah. on there. So that, you know. Um, well, I haven't done an inventory. That's I can't the other tell you how broad about, or wide it is. About but, the growth of this industry right now. Yeah. That just like iHeart, iHeart, Stitcher, you know, that you everybody can play a podcast on any of these apps, even though these 
app owners also are producing content and want you to play with their It's because toys. podcasting is fundamentally different than even, say, YouTube. It's still also the case that anyone can go create a video series and kind of put it online. Right, but it's more expensive. Yeah. Um, but because YouTube, because one company, Google, has decided to uh, underwrite and finance very expensive video bandwidth for yeah. the entire internet. Yeah, Facebook tried, but it's still really a, a Google world. It is turned it YouTube is has by that very fact become the default place for video to go. And as a result, you know, is is a virtual monopoly. Uh yeah. that does not exist for podcasting. Right. Yeah, audio. <laughs> so, uh, Audio's everywhere. Audio is everywhere. There are hosts that you can get for free. There are hosts that you might pay for in order to get uh different levels of service. You know, places where you host your audio, you upload your files and share them. But there's no one, there's no single one that is that is in charge. There's no single one where, you know, if if you're trying to distribute video online, you want people to see it and you don't put it on YouTube, a lot of people believe then your video basically isn't going to get seen very much. Yeah. Um, that is not true for podcasting. Now, the flip side to that is by there being such a sort of uh, much more diverse market and much more many diverse players, um, it's harder to get your stuff heard by a mass audience. And that's what we're talking about here is is a mass audience. It's such a weird – in my brain, and I think it's in many people's brains, so I I feel safe to talk about it this way, that there was a time, say in 2012, like I'm going to podcast – and if if the if if everything lines up, my podcast is going to be huge. Define huge. Yeah, and and I think that there's a um, there's a feeling in podcasting. I'll I'll just say it. I met a podcaster who I won't name who said, you know, if you'd asked me to, uh, he was giving advice to someone else. Should you start a podcast? And he said, if you'd asked me in 2012, I would have said, yeah, the the world is your oyster. And now. Uh, it's not. It's not as uh, easy to find your audience. It's you know. There's a. It's full. It's crowded here. And that's assuming that there is this definable, discrete, and ultimately uh, 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 non-growing set of people known as the podcast audience. But we know that's not true. We yeah. know that year over year we keep seeing the po- the number of people who know about podcasts and listen to podcasts growing. Yeah, and if I might use reverse logic. That's exactly why companies like iHeartMedia are getting into the game because they know that it's getting bigger and they want to part. And it doesn't require a license. Yeah. So I think, you know, look, um, I think it's it's important to still pay attention to the political economics, if you will, of podcasting, of broadcasting, of the Internet. That's why we talk so much about – um, in particular, network neutrality here on Radio Survivor, because we want to make sure that uh, independent radio station that goes online with a stream has equal access to your smartphone or your home internet connection as an iHeartMedia, or that independent podcast that goes online in your community uh, that shares the voices of people who might not have otherwise been heard in podcasting, that they have equal access to a listener's smartphone, a listener's uh, home computer, or or a smart speaker, if you will. It's looking at those structural relationships that really undergird how does the internet work and who gets to play there that I think continue to be very important. And if it turns out that uh, there's much more pay to play, where uh, in order to uh, easily reach your smart TV, 
somebody has to pay an extra toll to get their podcast listed there or come through your television or come through your smart speaker. Uh, that's what we're paying attention to. And, and we don't, it's hard to know yet who will be the bad guy in that situation. But we've seen it before with other mediums, with other, right. with other pipes, right? You, mm-hmm. So it's, it's not, it's not difficult to imagine. We're not being dystopian to imagine no. a world uh, where, where, where it's harder to get a podcast. But to me, that's ears. where you, where you want to pay attention. Yeah. Uh, if, if, you know, to make sure that, and it's, and it's the same forces that permit there to be independent internet radio that, that, that makes sure that a college or community or low power FM station can have an internet stream and grow their audience outside of people who, who can hear their signal over the air or outside of people who don't, you know, into audiences who don't own radios <laughs> for that matter, who's only audio consumption device is a smartphone. Yeah. Um, this, these are important points. And we want a community radio station's stream or podcast, a college podcast, to, to have that equal footing. And that has to do with the pipes. It has to do with the, the platform. Right. I so think. I don't have to worry so much just because, just because my old bones have a, like I have a, they, I have Be a vigilant. Wound. I have an old wound that Clear Channel put on my put on my ears, and I'm still scared of them. But uh, they mean me no harm in podcasting. They're sort of uh, they're a big wounded dinosaur at this point, if I understand things correctly. And I, you know, one of the so today on Radio Survivor, we're winding down, but we um we spoke about pirate radio at the top because there's the Preventing Illegal Radio Abuse Through Enforcement Act, which is the acronym that Congress came up with, which passed the House and uh, is awaiting action in the Senate, uh, which might um, increase the amount of enforcement on unlicensed radio, which led us to a discussion of indie media briefly. It, I just, I think it's a nice time with the seven minutes we have left on the show. I just like, I've been thinking a lot about how I got my start in community radio and what was uh, valuable to me and exciting about it and how I really, you know, I happened to be, uh, because of my generation and when I began, I sort of came in at the, at sort of the tail end of the crest of that indie media wave, uh, working for free speech radio news and, and free speech radio news was an independently produced, uh, half hour daily news program with correspondents around the world, uh, contributing, you know, uh, the most grassroots radio news program I've ever heard. And it was, say. yeah, thank you. And it was, it was a real pleasure and a privilege to get to work for them in the early aughts. And, you know, basically my time was a uh, late 2003 uh, to, I think, geez, <laughs> you know, it's, the way you wind down a job like that is, uh, is, is hard to really pin down now that the, now that the future is upon me, but I worked for many years for free speech radio news. Um, it's important to note that FSRN, also, um, while independent, was um, tethered very closely to the financial uh, health of the Pacifica Radio Network, um, which is uh, related to why FSRN's not on the air anymore. A, a, a large network of five prominent community radio stations in arguably uh, – KPFA, it's a flagship station, if you will, in Berkeley, California, um, an originator of community radio, period. But, but what FSRN was and why I want to talk about it at all out loud to our audience is just that, like Paul said, like in, it tied together indie media culture throughout the globe. Mm-hmm. That was the idea. I think that was the vision when it was founded. 
in in a news oriented format. So uh, FSRN, an episode of FSRN, as I worked on it for many years, was um, a headlines package, and then uh, which was about five minutes, and then we would have uh, roughly four or five shorter, uh, not shorter, r- longer reported stories. You would hear the voices of the people from the locations where the stories were taking place. And what was really unique about FSRN and why I was so proud to be a part of it, why it's still something that I um, long for, I want to hear FSRN-like content still to this day, is that those reporters, uh, if, if we had a reporter in Africa filing a story over the internet, a radio story, uh, unlike the BBC, where you would just hear one BBC voice read the thing they'd written on FSRN, it was our reporter and then the person they interviewed and then our reporter and then the person they interviewed and then our reporter and the person they interviewed. And hopefully they interviewed like four, three or four different people. And those people's voices were broadcast on the air. And that was what made it um, really shine. That was what made it special. Yeah. It was not, you know, a Western person from you know the United States or Canada who had been parachuted yeah. into into Zimbabwe, it would be somebody who lived there. Ideally, sometimes we had we right. had a uh, you know when we when we the some of FSRN's strongest reporting I think was during the the beginning of the Iraq War, right? And we had a handful of reporters, um, Aaron Glantz, yeah, um, one among them is uh, he's the name I'm going to mention now. Aaron also is uh, important to mention because. They they were one of the founders of Free Speech Radio News, and then they went to Iraq to report on the beginning of the war. What Aaron would do when he got there, like many journalists, uh, he worked with a fixer. He worked with a local yeah. person who could speak the language and act as translator and also grant access to different rooms and talk to different people. Um, I think what's valuable, though, is that still you still heard on the microphone And Aaron was not, was not embedded. That is correct. Aaron was unembedded, which is also something that I don't think is as uh, easy to talk about as it used to be. When the, when the Iraq war started, most journalists, the vast majority of Western journalists who went to the war zone, uh, traveled with, embedded with the U.S. military, and Aaron uh, was not embedded. He was uh, nowhere near the U.S. military if he could help it because it was dangerous to be near them. Uh, he was uh, in the cities talking to people. Not in the military. Yeah, so very much though, it, with a focus again on 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 hearing from actual Iraqis. Yeah, in that particular case, but also hearing from people um, in these communities, uh, not not having to be spoken for, and but I'm, speaking for themselves. Gosh, I've been thinking about free speech radio news just because it really. I mean, uh, we had Julia Thomas on recently, and Julia traveled the globe on a on a on a foundation grant, I believe, to um, to interview indie media makers a community media makers all around the world you know india and pakistan and africa and zimbabwe south africa and zimbabwe and uh ecuador including the galapagos islands which is still a delight to me that there's community radio in the galapagos islands and all of those places all of the people that are making radio there um were the kinds of people that would have gotten uh paid to file news stories about their communities by Free Speech Radio News and broadcast those voices. It's important to note, to, right, that this was not a volunteer operation. Yeah, they would broadcast those voices to throughout the United States and throughout FSRN's audience, which was international as well. But really, it was played on the radio. It was available to all these community radio stations throughout the Pacifica diaspora. But any station 
that wanted to play it could play it. And uh, those news stories from those stations, because a lot of times we were working with radio people. Um, it was it was one place where it could be uh, collected. And Julia Thomas was talking about when we spoke on Radio Survivor recently about community radio across the globe, that there still is sort of a need for um, for community radio stations around the world to to um, to speak to one another, to have a place where that collection uh, can be collected. And I think FSRN acted as that briefly, um, however briefly, 10 years or so. Um, and uh, That's another oral history. Yeah, that's I'd something else that hear. I'd like to work on. So uh, thank you for letting me talk about that today on Radio Survivor. Well, thank you for spending another hour with us. If you'd like to learn more about anything we've talked about on today's program, go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 100. And 83. Yeah, if you have anything you'd like to share with us, uh, questions, comments, show ideas, go ahead and email us. The email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And of course, uh, we are a listener and reader supported enterprise. To learn more about that, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Eric, thank you that was a <laughs> for pleasure. another hour. And we look forward to talking with everyone next week. See you again next week, everybody.